So we have uh, been speaking about Tantra. We have uh, discussed many different uh, aspects of it. And we have uh, reviewed those uh, aspects several times. So no need to repeat yet again. There's uh, just one thing that uh, I want to uh, add to uh, our discussion, which is uh, the uh, importance of uh, understanding voidness or emptiness and uh, how we go about uh, analyzing that in terms of uh, what we've been discussing. And uh, for this, the uh, question really is uh, how does uh, our enlightenment, uh, or not yet happening enlightenment, exist in terms of uh, Buddha nature? In other words, what is the relation? And uh, we approach this in uh, four different ways. So first is in terms of uh, existence in general. We uh, look at the result in enlightenment and how does it exist. And uh, if enlightenment itself were already self-established by itself, there would be no need to actually do anything. So that's impossible. And if uh, it didn't exist at all, if it were a nothing, then how could a nothing become a something? If it were truly a nothing, it didn't exist. So it is neither self-established as existing or self-established as not existing now. Okay, so that's a lot of words, isn't it? And... <laughs> The question is, uh, how do we understand that? And I think to understand that, we need to uh, get a little bit more clarity uh, about self-established existence. What are we talking about? Now, we have, uh, I'm speaking from the Galupa point of view, Tsongkhapa, and his uh, followers explain it. Uh, things have a uh, self-nature, conventionally. In other words, uh, what they are, nature, self-nature of what they are and of how they exist. Uh, things are not like uh, blank cassettes or something like that. Conventionally, this is a bottle, this is a chair, this is a leg, this is an arm. And uh, also, there are defining characteristics of things conventionally because uh, we have the aggregate of distinguishing and uh, that's sometimes translated as the aggregate of recognition but uh, that's a recognition is a little bit too sophisticated here so uh, we can uh, distinguish non-conceptually in other words through sense cognition this from that because uh, in our visual field, what actually is appearing are colored shapes made of pixels. And uh, we are able to uh, put together various color shapes 
into conventional objects and distinguish one from another, aren't we? So that's the work of uh, the aggregate of distinguishing. If we didn't have that, it would be impossible to deal with, uh, with the world. It's both with visual, audio, etc. In many, many sounds, we can distinguish one from the background, etc. With our sense cognition, we don't distinguish what something is, but we can distinguish one object from another object uh, in terms of distinguishing what something is. That uh, is referring to the uh, defining characteristic that uh, is shared in common, which would allow for uh, fitting that object into a category, like human being. So all these colored objects that I see, <laughs> colored shapes that I distinguish into different objects, I can fit them into the category of human being. And I can distinguish them from the chairs. So this is a conventional reality, conventional truth of things. This is uh, how our world actually, I mean, how we are able to deal with all the uh, information that we take in in the world. So now the question is, how do we establish that anything exists? How do we prove it? And what uh, our uh, Prasangika teachings are uh, telling us that uh, that self-nature is not a self-establishing nature. In other words, it doesn't have the power by itself to establish all by itself that this is a thing. In other words, it doesn't take these colored shapes and encapsulate them in plastic and make it into a thing, does it? It's not like in a coloring book. It's a line around it, and now it's a thing. So that self-nature is, is not a self-establishing nature. Right? I mean, think about that. You know, the body is made of uh, atoms and uh, energy fields and so, and so on, and there's no line around it, is there? It separates it from what's next to it. So there's nothing inside it that generates, that uh, makes it into a thing by its own power, with a line around it. Uh, encapsulated in plastic. It's not like that. And the same thing with the defining characteristic. It doesn't have the power by itself to establish that something exists, uh, to establish what something is. So how do we establish that something exists? Well, conventionally, we have these uh, categories, what in the ordinary language we call concepts. And we have words that uh, we designate on these uh, categories, like uh, the word human being, and the category of human beings. And this is uh, only natural. If we didn't have that, we couldn't have language. We couldn't uh, communicate. And these uh, categories and these words, words actually are just sounds that are then designated as a word and giving them a meaning, uh, they refer to something. And uh, so that's how we establish that something exists. That, uh, well, the categories for them, or concepts for them, 
and the words for them refer to something, and we agree on that. But uh, although these categories and the uh, words refer to something, things don't uh, actual, I want to use this word reality, the actual reality is that things don't correspond to these categories and words. So we make a distinction here between category or a word referring to something and things corresponding to the category or word. I'll explain that. You see, categories and words seem to imply that things exist in a box. Here's the box of human beings. Here's the box of love. Here's the box of, uh, you know, the color red. Here's I mean, all these boxes and uh, words as well. You know, well, it fits right here in the dictionary under this word. Things don't exist in boxes. Think about it. I think a very nice example for that is the category of liking somebody and loving somebody. I like you. I love you. Where's the dividing line? Are these two boxes? And now the emotion fits into this box, and now it fits into that box. And what I mean by liking you and loving you, is that the same as what you think I like you and I love you means? Do you also make the same dividing line? It's a concept, isn't it? But these words, these concepts of liking somebody and loving something do refer to something. They're not meaningless, but from the side of emotion, it's not that you know, the emotion is out here and here's the dividing line, and on this side it's in this box, and on that side it's in that box. So in reality, things don't correspond to these boxes, these word categories and so on, but the words and so on do refer to something. They don't refer to nothing. So, although conventionally things have a self-nature, defining characteristic, and so on, uh, they don't have the power to establish that something exists in a box, do they? Even the defining characteristic is just made up, isn't it? Some definition people put in the dictionary. So, the only way that we can establish that there is such a thing as liking somebody and loving somebody is that we have the concepts, the categories, and the words for that in our various languages. And we agree upon that. You know, it's a convention. And uh, it can be verified, you know, by our behavior and so on. And that's all that can establish that there is such a thing as liking and loving. Nothing from the side of the emotion itself. We feel something. And just because we feel something, that doesn't establish what it is. But we feel something, and what we feel doesn't have, you know, some little, doesn't, you know, say, hey, I'm liking, hey, I'm love. It doesn't say that. There's nothing on its side. There's no little, you know, barcode or something over here that says, you know, what it is. And there's nothing on its side that sets up a, a big wall between, you know, me, I'm like, liking. And on the other side of that wall is loving. It doesn't work like that, does it? But we have these conventions. So it's established by 
We have this word mental labeling. Mental labeling refers to conceptual, you know, putting things in categories or concepts and designation. That's with words. Okay. And the category can be either accurate or inaccurate, depending on convention, depending on asking other people, and, and so on. We can verify. Okay? So, when we look at enlightenment, then, there's nothing on the side of enlightenment that establishes it already as being enlightenment. Is there? So it's not self-established. Is there such a thing as enlightenment? Sure. You know, we have the concept, we have the word, and uh, can be verified by, you know, all the indications of what uh, enlightenment is and so on. Yes, but enlightenment isn't some sort of thing that all by itself makes it enlightenment. The only way we can establish that there is such a thing as enlightenment is in terms of Mental label. Mental label doesn't create anything. Category doesn't create anything. But that's how we, how do you demonstrate? How do you establish? How do you prove that there is such a thing? But if we think in terms of, if we think of enlightenment, well, just because uh, we think of it in terms of a concept, category, enlightenment, and the word enlightenment, uh, it gives the impression that uh, Enlightenment is sort of a self-established thing. You know, there it is. It's a thing. It fits in this box. But that's like an illusion. That's the deceptive appearance. We have to understand that uh, that uh, doesn't correspond to the way it actually is. So that was this uh, first point, that there's uh, that enlightenment, what we're aiming for, is not something which uh, is self-established. In other words, there's something inside Enlightenment, making it a thing that uh, makes it uh, exist all by itself or that makes it not exist. So, voidness of that. Total absence of anything actually corresponding to this. No such thing. So, that means that enlightenment isn't up here, you know, in a big bubble, you know, plastic, and I'm aiming for that thing. Not like that. Or it's, you know, totally non-existent. Where, where is it? What's going to come from? It's come from nothing. So, in simple language, don't make the goal that we're seeking into some sort of solid thing that's there already. If it's there already, you don't have to do anything. Or that is truly not there. It's a nothing. And if it's a nothing, it's self-established as a nothing. So nothing can change that. Yeah, think about that. And use a simple example, you know, I feel love for you. Well, what is it? I mean, is it love, you know, some sort of thing here and a, you know, in plastic and now I'm going to go over here and I'm going to feel it? That's weird, isn't it? But it isn't that I feel nothing.
So our enlightenment is not a solid thing that's there already up in the sky, and it's not a nothing. So that's the first way in which we uh, look at voidness here. Then the second way is from the point of view of the cause. So is enlightenment sitting already in the cause and just waiting to come out? In other words, our enlightenment is sitting in our Buddha nature. There it is, self-established by itself, all by itself sitting there, and is just waiting to pop out like a, uh, you know, jack-in-the-box. You know, somebody that's sitting in the box and you press the button and it pops out. No, that's impossible. But is it going to come from no causes at all? That also is impossible. So... Both of those are impossible. So voidness is the absence of those impossible ways of establishing. You can't establish that there is enlightenment sitting inside your Buddha nature waiting to pop out. You can't establish it that way. You should be able to find it. It's not there. So even if we don't speak in terms of a presently happening enlightenment, not being there, if it were there, it's presently happening, which it's not. But even a not yet happening enlightenment is not happening now. Tomorrow is not happening now. Is there such a thing as tomorrow? Yes, but it's not happening now. It's not yet happening. Is there no such thing as tomorrow? Well, no. Is tomorrow self-established of what it's going to be? There it is. No. Many things can affect what's going to happen tomorrow. That's a very good example, actually. You know, tomorrow doesn't already exist. It's not already happening. Everything is set. You know, what's going to happen tomorrow? It's not like that. But also it isn't that there is no such thing as tomorrow. And tomorrow isn't sitting already set inside today, waiting to pop out. Is it? And what happens tomorrow isn't going to happen with no causes. So then the third thing that we think about are the stages involved in attaining enlightenment. So if our attainment of enlightenment is going to only happen on the basis of causality, of causes, putting in the causes, how do these stages, each step in the way, what's going on with them? How do we analyze them? Well, we have names for them. But <laughs> defining characteristics for them, but they don't establish them by themselves, do they? Every stage of the way, every step is going to be affected by all sorts of causes and conditions which have not yet happened. The stages are not set. Solid. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. Every stage of the way, every step of the way is going to be affected by all sorts of causes and conditions that are going to happen. It's the same thing when you uh, undertake a project. You can have some idea of the stages, you know, to accomplish your goal. But at each stage, different things are going to be happening and it's going to affect what you do. And you have to be flexible in undertaking a project. 
to adjust each stage as it evolves based on causes and conditions. So it's the same thing with the spiritual path. A very, very important principle to understand if you're trying to accomplish anything through steps. Each stage is going to be affected by causes and conditions. And you can't predict exactly what's going to happen at each that's going to affect your practice. Each step is going to arise dependently, you know, our old friend dependent arising, on all the causes and circumstances and conditions that are happening at that time, which each one is going to be affected by all sorts of other causes and conditions. Your health, what's going on in the world, uh, your family, all sorts of things going to affect each stage as you progress. So that whole process, step by step to attaining enlightenment, doesn't exist in these impossible ways that each step is established from its own side as, you know, now, bah, you know, path of seeing, now, bah, you know, this or that. It doesn't happen like that. So you relax. Not everything is under my control. That's impossible. So many other things are going to affect the whole spiritual path. Right? Spiritual path is not some ladder or some staircase existing by its own powers over there, and all I have to do is go over it and climb up it. That's silly. That's not how it is, is it? Okay, so that's the third aspect at which we look at uh, voidness. And then the fourth one is in terms of me who's following the path and our mental continuum, you know, in which all of this is uh, occurring and what we're actually doing. And all of these depend on each other. They don't exist separately. They don't establish themselves separately. So there isn't a me that is separate and now I'm, you know, established by itself and now I'm coming over here and I'm going to follow the path which is established over there by itself. Is it? Being a practitioner is only established in relation to a practice you're actually doing. A practice is only established as a practice in terms of people practicing it and the action of practicing. So, like this, in order to practice Tantra, you know, working with the, you know, not yet happening enlightenment, you know, bodhicitta that we're focusing on that and that we're representing it with these Buddha figures and so on, we have to understand, you know, that this goal that we're aiming for isn't just, you know, sitting up in the sky and, you know, our not yet happening enlightenment is sitting in a box inside our head somewhere and all the stages, you know, it's not like it's me over here and I'm going to climb the stages like a staircase over there. Everything dependently arises and we can only establish that uh, all of this exists in terms of, well, we have the categories, the concepts, the words for these, and it does refer to something. Okay, these four are known as the four gateways to liberation, four doors to liberation sometimes called.
sometimes the three gateways to, uh, to liberation, that is uh, leaving out the uh, voidness of the steps. When you, add, when you have four, you add that one as well. Now this is unbelievably helpful, not only in terms of our striving to enlightenment, whether through sutra or tantra, but in terms of trying to accomplish anything in our lives, you know, something big. Like let's say I'm studying to become a doctor. How do we approach that without you know, getting all uptight? Or I use it in terms of uh, making this a uh, huge website project. You use it in anything. I'm going to raise a family. Does the family already exist? No. Is the family totally non-existent? Then it can never happen. Is the family already sitting inside me and inside you know me and my partner? No. Is it going to come about from no cause? No. As I raise the family, you can't predict what's going to happen. Every stage is going to be affected by so many different things. There's not me over here and the family over there and raising them over there and it's all interrelated. So even in the most uh, everyday example, this analysis is incredibly helpful to not get all sorts of you know weird uptight about you know what, what you're doing, but to approach it in a very, what should we say, calm and clear way. Step by step, adjusting to whatever is going on at the moment. Dependent arising. Okay, so let that settle for a while and then we'll have more questions. All of this obviously requires a great deal of uh, thought, meditation, analysis, and uh, so on. But uh, so, so helpful. Okay, so what questions do you still have? Uh, the question is about those practices that involve uh, working with uh, winds and channels. How to establish that these things are real and existent? Because, for instance, from the point of view of Western medicine, we don't uh, acknowledge them. Well, certainly we uh, can't uh, establish them by uh, dissecting the body and looking for them, so that's clear. Uh, however, by uh, doing certain practices, 
mentally, obviously, then uh, we find that uh, we are able to affect what we experience from the point of view of energy. Okay, now let's get a little bit more specific. That was a terribly vague sentence that I just said. Energy. There's mental activity. When we talk about mind, we're talking about mental activity. And that mental activity is the arising of some sort of mental hologram, and that can also be described in terms of an awareness of something. Awareness of something is the arising of a mental hologram. And there's no separate me that's doing that, or no separate mind that is the instrument with which it's being done. So every moment there's an arising of some sort of mental hologram, whether it's, uh, you know, we describe it, we experience it, you know, there's something that uh, you see in your mind, you know, there's photons coming in and it's translated into electric impulses and chemical messages and then somehow there's a mental hologram, you're seeing something or without the external input, you're thinking something. So we have, uh, and that's what it means to see or to think. So it's happening moment to moment to moment, individual continuity, and content is uh, arising in terms of cause and effect, karma, etc. So, okay, mental continuum. And there's some physical basis for it. And uh, energy that, you know, you can describe what's happening from an energy point of view. Okay, so now think of this. We think in terms of clear light mind. Most concentrated laser type Single point, no disturbance, no interference. You know, elect, you know interference like a, a wave or stuff like that. You know, it's just pure. So this has the ability to be able to know everything. Anything can arise with that. There's no distortion. Now, because of the force of ignorance and its instincts and karma and all of this other stuff, we don't stay like that. Even though you get to that point of the death consciousness. And so, because it's no longer concentrated like that, then it gets more dispersed and you have interference waves and uh, you get, you know, subtle conceptual thought and so on. So the energy is a bit disturbed. And then you're going to have a physical basis that is going to support that. That's these subtle channels and so on, or the bardo body or something like that, some subtle thing. And then it's going to get grosser and grosser, and you're going to get, you know, all this really disturbed energy. And there's going to be, you know, more heavy physical body that's going to be the basis for that. And this is the problem. This is the problem, because now the energy has gone wild, and there's so much disturbance and interference. So you get the disturbing emotions, and you get all this, this horrible stuff. And you can feel that if you're sensitive enough. I mean, even if you're not terribly sensitive, you drink enough coffee, and you feel nervous. You can feel that energy, or even if, you know, without drinking coffee, if you're somebody who's nervous, we call that nervous. You're worried all the time. You can feel that. The energy is not going smoothly at all. So that energy moves through the body. So there must be some sort of 
what should we say, channels through which it moves. Well, you can't actually find them, but you can make some sort of diagram that is like a concept of it that uh, refers to something. So it's referring to something. But there's nothing inside the body that you can dissect and find and point to, and there it is. And what we want to do, what we're trying to do, specifically with the complete stage practices of Anutra Yoga Tantra, is to somehow get that energy, that subtle energy, many, many levels of it, to stop going in such a horrible way through the body, not to just have it go you know, in a calm way through the body, but to get it to stop and to get back down to this laser-like clear light mind and to stay there. You know, it's, rel it's quite difficult to get it to be speed down there, but even more difficult to get it to stay there and not out of the force of habit, go back, back out. So how do we establish that there are such a thing as the channels and the winds and so on? Well, we have the concepts for them. We have the categories. We have the words, and they refer to something. But you can't establish it from the side of the channels and so on, and they refer to something. And through cause and effect, we can dependently, you know, dependently affect them. And, you, and things happen as a result. But that establishes that there is such a thing. But there are several conceptual frameworks of looking at uh, the energy systems. There's one in Kala Chakra. There's one in Guhya Samaja. Hindus have one. It's Chinese acupuncture channels. And they are ways of describing what uh, one can do in working with these subtle energies. They all have a validity. It's not established you know, from its own side over there. The example that I often use for these multiple systems is a dozen eggs. This dozen eggs can be uh, divided into uh, two groups of six, three groups of four, four groups of three, six groups of two. Is only one of them valid? No, they're all valid. Is it established from the side of the eggs? Well, no, not really. Is it? <laughs> but just from the side of the mind, how you conceive of this egg, of these eggs. Oh, I can make three omelets. No, I can make four omelets out of it. They're all valid. So it's like that. <laughs> okay, next. <laughs> uh, so the problem is the appearance of feeling of fear and hopelessness because of uh, uh, thinking about and meditating on different aspects of the teachings, uh, such as uh, death and impermanence, uh, the amount of our negative emotions, obscurations, and so on, uh, precious human uh, life, and also uh, voidness, uh, because uh, before uh, we got some, even if it's a small understanding of uh, voidness, some even it's conceptual and small understanding. We had some basis for our uh, me, for ourself and the world around. Uh, then uh, while meditating on voidness, we start to understand that this basis is rather illusory uh, and uh, it uh, basically uh, gives us some feeling of uh, uh, 
insecurity and fear and uh, hopelessness. We are insecure because we are hoping that things exist in the ways that uh, we imagine, but they don't. And so that makes us, uh, you know, our false expectations and false hopes are what make us insecure. We think that, uh, let's say, you're in a uh, relationship and uh, we think that we're in control of what's going to happen in that relationship. But of course, we're not in control. There's the other person as well, and there's all sorts of external circumstances as well that are going to affect what uh, happens. And so, because it's impossible that we can be in control of what happens, we're insecure. Because we, it's demonstrated to us all the time that we're not in control. You know, you, I mean, think of life in the city with uh, such uh, uh, terrible traffic. If you have this false conception that I'm going to go from my home to the office or to this lecture in a half hour, well, of course you're going to be insecure because you can't be in control of that. You don't know what the traffic is going to be like. You don't know what's going to happen along the way. So you're insecure because you, you want to be able to be in control. You want to be able to arrive on time. But uh, as you travel, you see that uh, that's not going to happen. That's impossible. So if you just embrace, to use a poetical term, embrace the fact that you're not in control, and it's not as though there's a solid me who is not in control. And you freak out, ah, I'm not in control but uh, that uh, everything is going to arise dependently. So then you just, you just, you know, however long it takes, it takes. And you're not upset, you're not insecure, you're not nervous. And you leave enough time, you know, in order to get there, you know, considering that there could be a lot of delays. And if you get there early, okay, so what? So when you pop the balloon of your illusions, your fancy, you know, your, your wild ideas of how things exist, then actually it enables you to calm down rather than making you feel more insecure. You know, if you imagine that your partner is, you know, Prince Charming on the white horse, then you are, you know, completely insecure because uh, they don't act like that. So if you get rid of that, you know, projection, that image, and you don't try to be secure, you know, hold on to something, then however the relationship develops, it develops. Uh, Accept the person for what they are. Nobody's the prince or princess. You know, very helpful uh, uh, instruction in meditation, but it uh, also applies to everything. Don't have any expectations, and then you won't have any disappointments. Yes. Yesterday you explained about the pride of a deity, and uh, the question is, what exactly it is? How do you practice? Is it connected with the 
development stage and what is the difference between the pride of the deity and the normal pride? Pride of the deity is referring to the valid imputation of the self, me, on the not yet happening enlightenment imputed on my mental continuum on these Buddha nature factors as represented by the Buddha figure. How's that for a lot of jargon in one sentence? <laughs> so, now I have to share with you and explain the big difference between three terms that unfortunately in Tibetan are all translated by the same word. So it's confusing. Imputation, mental labeling, and designation. Okay, so imputation is, uh, if we use it in a strict sense, I mean, it can also be used you know, generally for all three of these. As I said, it's the same word. But uh, what uh, I try to restrict that term to is in terms of uh, changing phenomenon that are neither forms of physical phenomenon nor ways of being aware of something. But it can be extended a little bit further than that as well. So let me use an example. I think more precisely we would say that I restrict this term now to these objects that can be known non-conceptually. That's a better way of saying it. Uh, if we think of uh, dots, you know, dots, pixels, then uh, we can impute on these dots or atoms or whatever a line and then you can uh, impute further a surface and you can impute further a volume. Those are imputations. One dimension, two dimensions, three dimensions. So can you see a line? Yes. Can you see a surface? Yes. Can you see a volume? Yes. But actually, all of those, I mean, there's just a series of dots, isn't there? Atoms. So this is, and the same thing with uh, motion. Can you see motion? Well, actually, one moment an object is here, the next moment is over here, and the next moment is over there. So motion is an imputation. It's not something which is projected conceptually. It's something that you can actually see. So, from the Sautrantika point of view, it is objective. And it's the same relation between parts and a whole. There are parts, and there's a whole. Whole is imputed on the parts. There's a bunch of trees, and there's a forest. Okay, so this is objective, and we can see that. So, the self, me, is an imputation on the aggregates. So there's a body and there are, you know, uh, sensory objects and, you know, in the mental in terms of the mental hologram, there's consciousness, there's mental factors, there's feeling, all these sort of things. And an imputation is me. It's not something which is added extra out from outside. A whole is not added extra from outside onto parts. A line is not something extra added from outside onto dots. So if we have a series of photographs of ourself, we used this example before, 
from time that we were a baby until uh, now, well, they're all a picture of me. Me is an imputation on them. It's not somebody else. It's me. So it's putting it all together in terms of me. That's the imputation. And future photographs of when I get older and so on, not yet happening now, that would also still be me. And I'm not identified permanently with any of these. Am I? I'm not a still photograph. I'm not still a baby. And we can extend that, you know, all sorts of past lives and future lives and not yet happening future lives and not yet happening enlightenment as well. They all are validly me as the imputation. The pride of the deity is uh, this uh, realization that it, that it is me. Me is an imputation on this. It's not somebody else. So objectively, it's me. Sao point of view is not that there's something on its side establishing this me. I mean, let's not go there. But uh, just to distinguish it from uh, something conceptual, objectively, this is me, whether past or, you know, already no longer happening or presently happening or not yet happening. The year, now we're in February. So January was this year. Presently, today is this year. You know, March, April, etc., all of that, which is not yet happening. That's also this year. So this year is an imputation on all these months. Some no longer happening, something presently happening, something not yet happening. They're all equally this year. Now, mental labeling is conceptual. Now, we fit all of this into a category, a box. And designation is also conceptual. We give it a name, 2017. But putting it in a box, then we have all sorts of connotations. This is a terrible year. This is going to be a great year. All of that is in terms of our preconceptions about this box that we fit the year into. So whether we fit it into a box and give it a number as its name or not, nevertheless, still, there's a year. I mean, these are similar in the sense that there is something that is being imputed or labeled or designated and a basis for it, and so on. From that point of view, it's the, the, the same. That's why they're called by the same word. But nevertheless, there's a difference, a very significant difference. So pride of the deity has to do with this imputation of me on the not yet happening enlightened me as represented by this Buddha figure. That's all it is. But without, just as you don't, don't solidly identify with the baby me, you don't solidly identify with the Buddha figure me either. The understanding of voidness. We're not frozen into one thing. We're not a still picture. Pride, the disturbing emotion, is making me into some solid, self-established thing. And in comparison to others, I'm better than they are. And when Shantideva uses the word pride in two meanings, you know, I'm going to use pride to overcome pride, he is using pride there in the sense of self-confidence. 
and use my self-confidence to overcome the disturbing emotion of pride. But in Sanskrit, it's the same word. So excuse me for taking quite a while to explain that, but uh, it's really important to understand the difference between imputation, mental labeling, and designation. Imputation is the objective, you know, whole with uh, parts. Mental labeling is with categories, concepts. Designation is with words. Otherwise, we think that me is just a concept. And although there may be some Buddhist positions that uh, assert that, that's certainly not the Galupa position. Anyone else? Often we do practices where we try to purify other sentient beings. And the question is, how this type of practices, sometimes they are with deities uh, or other types of practices that uh, when we aim at purifying others, how they can work if others not actually participating from their own uh, side in this process? When we speak in terms of purifying others, actually what we're talking about is purifying our own how they appear to us. So rather than seeing them as you horrible person or you poor thing, the appearance, you know, mentally is uh, in terms of their Buddha nature factors that uh, there's also an imputation of a not yet happened enlightened being here. So we purify how it appears to us. But uh, as it says, a Buddha can't, you know, pure, take away others' suffering. They can't take away others' uh, confusion or ignorance. So neither can we. Now there's also the practice of donglen, of giving and taking, in which you imagine taking on the suffering or ignorance or whatever of others and giving them happiness. In most cases, it won't actually work, but uh, it's done to develop our own courage to uh, uh, help others and to stop just thinking, poor me. And when it does work, in some cases it does work, uh, it's not by the power of what I'm doing alone. It arises dependently on the other person having to, they necessarily have the potential to get rid of that problem, whatever it is, and our doing the practice provides a circumstance for that to ripen more quickly, in other words, ripen now. So they're being rid of that problem arises dependently on all these factors, not just by what I'm doing by itself. So, one more question. The question is about the proper sequence uh, of what we do when we die. Uh, we're living in a big city, so it's a little bit difficult situation. What would you recommend? How would you recommend to perform this dying practice? His Holiness Dalai Lama explains, we have these uh, practices in Anutra Yoga Tantra, in which we uh, imagine that we're in the form of a Buddhist fi the Buddha figure, and uh, I mean the, the various sequences of uh, eight stages, ten stages, etc., of the uh, dissolution. So uh, we imagine that, practice with that in our meditation, so that we're familiar with what happens when we die. However, he says, at the time of death, in almost all cases, it's not recommended that you try to do that because you're going to get too worried, too upset that I don't have the visualization right, and uh, you're going to be very disturbed. And so, although you have practiced that before, so you know what's going to happen, 
much better at the time of death just to uh, focus on bodhicitta, uh, the uh, aspiration that I may be, may I be able to continue on the path to enlightenment in all my future lifetimes, meet my teachers and continue that way. It's much, you'll die with much more peace of mind and not so uptight about getting the visualizations correct. That's what His Holiness says. That's for us ordinary practitioners. We're not talking about some super advanced practitioner. So one last question. Uh, the question is, from the Buddhist point of view, uh, what is better to do with the person who already deceased, so with the corpse, whether we bury it or cremate, uh, does it affect in any way the future better rebirths? What's better to do? Once they're dead, they're dead. It doesn't matter what we do with the body. So what we do with the body really uh, depends on the wishes of the family, the wishes of that person themselves, the circumstances. In Tibet, you couldn't get wood very easily you know, to burn a body. So uh, they fed it. Do we want to feed it to the worms in the ground? Do we want to uh, donate the body to a medical school you know, to uh, help uh, students uh, learn anatomy? And there are many things we can do with the body. So it depends on the wishes of the person and the family. The uh, great lamas usually uh, will have uh, cremation. That's uh, the standard thing. Why? Because uh, then the ashes can be distributed and you can have a little bit in uh, you know, different stupas. So people can uh, use this as uh, objects of uh, veneration. You couldn't do that by, you know, I'll chop off one finger and put that in this stupa and I'll chop off another, you know, the nose and put it there. I mean, that would be a little bit too weird. So they have uh, cremation. So everything depends. You know, if you bury in the ground, I know at least in my family, for instance, uh, they uh, don't prefer that at all because then you have a cemetery and a grave and people are going to come and you have to pay to keep up the grave and, uh, you know, all of that. And uh, better to just cremate and, uh, you know, disperse the ashes in a body of water or something like that. It depends on the family. I mean, obviously, if you can offer your organs to, you know, organ transplant, something like that, this is wonderful. So, depends on us. So, let us uh, end then with a the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from all of this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. <laughs>